the table is turned. The table is turned and, and David is not... God is still speaking to David, of course, but this time we're seeing things from David's perspective. This is written in first person. That is, David is doing the thinking and doing the singing and doing the talking and, and involved in this, and so we can put ourselves in that position. But, but as we begin, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are mindful of your goodness and your grace. We are thankful for the opportunity that we have to be your children. We are especially thankful for the opportunity to open our Bibles and study and look into Psalm 119 and think about what you would have us to know, what you want us to know about your holy word and how it molds us, how it guides us, how it affects us, how it teaches us to serve you. Help us to open our minds and open our hearts and even take notes and learn all that we can learn and apply as we live for you through your truth. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So tonight, and these titles are strictly mine. Uh, I may glean some thoughts from different places, but, but uniquely it is uh, just my thoughts here as far as a title to the section. But when I look at Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64, I, am, I see my personal response to the Word of God. As I said, it's in first person. As some things that, that, that God's Word should cause me to do, my response to it, what it leads me forward to do, and how it affects me. So as we do that, I want us to begin tonight by just simply reading the text. And I want to read to you, and in just a moment, um, nobody noticed, and I'm glad. I was looking around for my glasses, make sure I had them before we started, and I couldn't figure out where they were. Then I, oh yeah, right where I left them. And uh, none of you have ever done that, I know. Uh, let's begin reading verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion to all who fear you for those of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Now, as we get into this lesson tonight, I'd like to begin with a little bit of a focus question. Uh, and this is going to sound like, I hope it does, and it might sound like a silly question. But I'm being serious. What are verbs? Now, of course, you understand this was written in Hebrew, and Hebrew has verbs, has an alphabet. English it has an alphabet, has verbs. Okay, so, not a trick question. What is, what is a verb? It's an action. It, well, it's a word that shows action, right? And so then, what's action? Not a trick question, I promise. Doing, yes, doing something. Something is going to transpire when this action verb is evoked, okay, invoked, when something, uh, when it takes place. Okay, 
Now, to, to continue that, does word choice make a difference in the impact? Does verb choice make a difference in the impact? What's going on? Yes or no? Nod your head. I, there are people who are nodding their head yes. You, okay, you, you believe, believe that, right? Okay, let's, let's try a little experiment to, to illustrate that, or a little illustration. Okay, just real quick, and the folks who are watching live stream, you can raise your hand too. It kind of looks silly, I guess, but you can participate. Um, how many of you have ever, and I'm not trying to be personal, I'm just setting the stage, any of you in the course of your life ever had a new car that you really liked? Anybody? Oh, okay, a few. Good. Now, second question. Any of you, and that's just setting the stage, any of you ever had children who grew up to become teenagers, driver's license, driving car, who really wanted to drive that new car? Ever had anybody? Okay. Now, with your hands, now, think about this. Tell me, a, listen to this sentence. Dad or mom, I drove your new car Stop right there. I drove your new car. Drove. First of all, that makes probably might make some of you cringe. But I drove your new car, comma, and I washed and detailed it. Okay, tell me, what kind of, some of you are already smiling. What kind of response, you know, what kind of effect does that sentence have? The action of those words. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, what do you want? Okay. But that, that's a good thing, right? You wouldn't get upset about that, would you? No, if that, there wasn't anything attached to it at least, right? Now, here's a second sentence. Same car, same teenager. Mom, Dad, I drove your new car, comma, and I wrecked and destroyed it. Different effect. Different outcome, different emotions, all because of different words. Now, if you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? I want you to consider what we just read and notice that it is absolutely full of verbs. Verbs that carry individual meanings, that carry individual effects, that lead me in a specific direction, a specific line of thinking and, and uh, perspective and behavior. And that is how I want us to think about the Word of God today as we consider this particular passage, my response to the Word of God. First of all, uh, I want us to notice, number one, verse 57. The Lord is my portion, I promise... To keep your words. I promise to keep your words. The Lord is my portion. Okay, let, let's stop right there and think for just a moment. The idea of a portion is uh, a part, an allotment, an inheritance. That's what this Hebrew word means. Um, an allotment that's given to someone, given to me uh, an inheritance. It makes me think of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when I read that text, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to the abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope or a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, 
Blessed be the God of our Father through His abundant mercy who has begotten us again to what kind of hope? A living hope. Now wait, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now all of us should be partakers of that. To an inheritance, verse 4. Incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away, reserved, where? In heaven for you. So I, I can't help but think about that particular passage when David starts this whole section by saying, the Lord is my portion. That in, in itself, everything that's important to me, what, what I want to get out of life, what I want to get is the Lord. Why? Because that's the end all, the be all of my life. So I can't help but think about that text uh, that we've been begotten, that living hope that's in us through the resurrection of Christ as we live as Christians, that, that's reserved for us in heaven. An inheritance is something that is reserved for children in good standing with the Father. And that, of course, applies to us. The Lord is my portion. Now, that semicolon, it flows right into that thought. Because of that reality, because of that truth, I promise to keep your words. What's a promise? What is a promise? Say that again. Something you make to somebody else? A vow? Ah. I wrote something down when I was preparing for this lesson, just simply my own thoughts, and I wrote it in red so I'd be able to see it standing up here. The word promise and the meaning that is associated in the English language today in 2021, and you can back up as many years as you need to, the word promise and the meaning associated with it has lost its value over the years. In our uh oh, I see some heads nodding. Why? People use it loosely. People make promises that they're either unable to keep or never intended to keep or do not keep. But a promise, I love that, is a vow. Have you ever known someone to, to do something? It wasn't maybe a major something, but it was very inconvenient. It was totally unnecessary uh, at the time. But somebody followed through and did something simply because they promised to. And that person could not pillow his or her head. That person could not fail to do that something because it was a personal thing with him or her. It was a a what? A vow? This promise, this idea of a promise is a commitment. A commitment. The King James says, I have said that I would. That's how it reads here. I have said that I would do this, and therefore I'm going to do it. Now, before we back up, come back to this, the word keep is also a verb. I promise to keep your words. Now, you could easily say, now that means to obey. And you would not be wrong. It certainly is involved in that, but the truth is that's not what this Hebrew word means. It doesn't mean simple compliance or simple obedience. Now, obviously, that's going to be a part of it. has to be. But it goes deeper than that. It goes much deeper than that because it has the idea 
to guard or protect, and we've talked about this particular word, to guard or protect, um, to be circumspect, to take heed to yourself, to be a watchman, to watch like a watchman does. Now, that would be specific. See, those who were singing this song would appreciate that even more than we do. Keep his words, obey. But it's more than that. It has the idea of guarding it in your heart and attending to it. Attending to it to make sure that God's word is not just kept up with. That's not what this word means at all. But it is a part of who I am. And I make sure that uh, the amounts, the word of God is in the amount it's supposed to be. The word of God is in contact. Uh, the, 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 the part of God's word that needs to be in contact with my heart and my life at this particular time in my life, I make sure that I am connecting with the Word of God based on where I am and what's going on in my life. Who else is going to do it if I don't? See, sometimes we sit and we scratch our heads and forgive me, Ken, if I start preaching, you wave and say, easy now. But we scratch our heads and think, well, God, why don't you give me an answer? Why don't, why don't, why don't you... And we're waiting for God to bring us the answer. But this word, I promise to keep your words. I promise that I'm going to guard the word of God in the confines of my own life to make sure that it is placed where it needs to be placed. And it is kept where it needs to be kept so that it does what it's promised to do. And that's all part of this particular word. And I can't help but think about the word watch as a watchman. Those who were reading this would have been, uh, in David's day, would have been well familiar with the idea of a walled city. And in the children of Israel, in that time, a walled city had posts where watchmen were. And a uh, Jewish watchman had three jobs. Number one, he had to stay awake. Number two, he had to actually watch for the enemy, which meant he had to recognize who the enemy was and who the enemy wasn't. And then he had to sound the alarm. Now, don't you understand that in the, the, the scope of this word, I promise to keep your words, that all of that is a part of my relationship with the word of God. That when I find myself not being able to think of Scripture because it's been so long since I studied. When I find myself not... When I find myself in a place where Scripture doesn't immediately come to me to console me, come to me, I don't mean it like that, that it doesn't pop into my mind because it's, it's already there waiting, that means my stores are running low. That means I need to attend to the shelves. You know, I don't mean this as a, a negative here, but a good illustration. My, my uh, nephew made a comment yesterday, and I thought, wow, he's just exaggerating. I'll just run by Walmart and run by the Sporting's Good and, and grab some 30-30 some, uh, uh, shells and get him some 308 shells while I'm there because he's just there when, why, you can't find... If you run out of a place to sleep, there's plenty of places to sleep at Walmart. Lots of wide spaces where stuff used to be. And, and you think, 
Well, that's not good, especially if it gets worse. You go down and you go to reach for it. It's not there. I needed some. It's not there. And I wanted some. And so if I'm on the other end of that, if I wanted to make, you know, if that was my job or my income, I'd say, okay, we've got to fix this. Why? The shelves are empty. So I'm not doing a, a, a good, I'm not doing the job I should be in keeping things as they should be, in, in being attentive to what's here. And that's what this word involves. The word circumspect also was in this definition. I thought that was interesting. Open your Bibles to Hebrew, no, Ephesians 5 and verse 15. We love uh, this particular verse sometimes because we like to talk about, uh, well, actually it's the next verse, verse 16. It says, redeeming the time or using it wisely. You know what's interesting? And, and this, let me give you a, a personal uh, reminder here. Folks, keep, keep encouraging your children, your grandchildren, to learn the truth. Don't let them, uh, because they get tired of, of, just keep at them. Because, you know, I can, uh, I, I like to study this from the English Standard Version, and I I can quote sometimes when I preach, I will memorize and quote the New King James. But when I did, did you notice what I did just then? When I said Hebrews, I mean Ephesians 5.15, I quoted verse 16. It was straight out of the King James because that's what I learned. That's what I grew up doing. When I sat in my Bible classes, when I sat uh, at my mother's feet, who always asked that question, always asked that question, have you got your... Bible lesson done. And we had one to do. Have you got it done? Where's your Bible? And one thing you never did, don't leave your Bible in the uh, back window of the car. Mm -mm. Uh, because you'd be in trouble. Study it and make it a part. That's a part of what he's talking about here. Somebody read Ephesians 5.15 if you've got it in front of you. Look carefully how you walk. Now, if you read that out of the King James, and I think the New King James, it says uh, circumspectly. That's an old... Uh, it means pay attention to where you're putting your feet. Pay attention to how you're walking. So in other words, be careful. Be careful how you're living your life. Now, I go all the way back. The Lord is my portion, I promise... Father, I give you my solemn vow. I make a commitment. In Joshua 24, 15, what did he say? As for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. Now, it's always interesting to me, if you quote that whole verse, he said, if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose you this day whom you're going to serve. And notice he gave them a choice. There's always a choice. The gods of Egypt or the gods of the land in which you are now or the Lord. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You and I can choose to serve the world 
We can choose to, to serve some family direction or we can serve the Lord. But we have to choose. That's what David is talking about. I choose, I commit to make sure that your word is not just obeyed on the outside, but it is maintained on the inside. And when you and I do that, the obedience on the outside becomes automatic. That doesn't mean we don't have to make an effort. Don't misunderstand. It means that effort becomes, it comes from the inside rather than, oh, we're going back to in service today. I got to get up. You mean like actually up, up? Well, I'm going to go because, no. When, when I keep the Word of God in my heart, then it moves me to do what's right. It doesn't make me do what's right. But number one, I promise, I commit. I make that commitment to you. And okay, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12. Therefore I suffer these things. What did Paul say there? I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Now, we love to go to that verse, and we should, because it gives us confidence. It gives us encouragement. We understand that God will do exactly what he said that he would do, and you do not, I do not ever have to worry about God or Christ not being able to take care of me. Why? Because I, I, I know whom I believe. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Judgment day. Now, we love all of that. But wait a minute before we leave that verse. There is a part that we read because it's part of the text that I want us to back up and single out. He is able to keep unto that day. Now, fill in the middle. That which I have committed to him. Folks, God can't keep something that I haven't given him to keep. The, Christ cannot bring with him on judgment something attached to my name that I have never given him in the first place. I, that which I have committed. And that's what David is referring to here. I promise, I commit I give you that commitment so that I can have that belief and I can be persuaded. But it has to be something that is active on my side. Number two, I entreat. I entreat. Now that's an interesting word as well. The word entreat. What does that mean to you, entreat? We don't use that word much in, in the ink. Well, we used it a lot as kids. We just didn't know what the word was. What? Beg. Okay, it has the idea of beg. It has the idea, actually, of, of begging and literally asking to the point of exhaustion or weakness. Now, understand, 
it's not meaning that God wants me to wear myself absolutely out because that's what he wants to do to me. No, you totally missed the point. It has to do with my perspective, with my frame of mind. David said, I entreat your favor with all of my heart. And that word entreat here in the Hebrew has the idea of begging, but not in the negative, imploring one's favor to the point of exhaustion. In other words, I know who my God is, and I know how powerful He is, and I know that my relationship is that important. Now, folks, that's why I said we probably wouldn't get through here, because this is a, this is a cool verse. First of all, I entreat your favor with all my heart. That word favor, when I looked that word up, it was one of those words that happens every once in a while. I look it up, Brother Luther, and uh, um, I, I thought, wait, I started reading it and I thought, wait a minute. This is the wrong word. Because this word means face. I wasn't looking for face, I was looking for favor. But then I, I kept reading, and the word favor here does mean acceptance. But the Hebrew word, this is a word that was used in the Hebrew language to mean a face, the part of the face that you turned towards someone. Now you think, what? What, what has that got to do? That doesn't... And what, another interesting thing, that word is always plural. It's plural. God, Christ... Isn't that interesting? But if you're thinking, why would that word favor have anything to do with a face? Turn to Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. If any of you who are listening at home are wondering if that's an echo, no, that's just Luther that's quoting the verse over, and that's okay. Uh, no, don't poke him. I said it's okay. Uh, Behold the Lord's hand, in fact, it's wonderful. The Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. His ear is not heavy that, that he cannot hear. But your iniquity have separated between you and your God. And what does the, the rest of it say? What does the second part say? Your sins have done what? Hid his face. You see, they had an understanding in the Old Testament. There was an understanding. The idea is that God knows exactly who we are at all times. It has to do, I seek your favor. David is saying, Lord, please look at me. Let me be, through your truth, according to your promise, have the heart I should have, the soul that I should have, be the person that I should have, so that you will never have cause to turn from me. Because if you're not looking at me, I am utterly and hopelessly lost and forgotten. So that word, I, 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 I entreat your favor, it, didn't, it doesn't just mean, it never means the idea of God saying, oh, that's really good. Let me pat you on the head. No, that's silly. And it's almost demeaning to the power of my God. I entreat your favor. In other words, Lord, let me be the person that your face is turned toward me. And I also think of 1 Peter. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 3 and verse 12. Now I understand. Sometimes I wonder, why did they word it that way? Well, it's because of their understanding. Peter would have been taught 
these scriptures and he would have been taught and learned and they would have discussed. Can you imagine what a conversation would have been like with Christ talking to them about Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 and helping them understand the power of God's face? Lord, I entreat your favor with all my heart that your face be turned to me. 1 Peter 3, 12. Somebody read it. And you know, it's easy. Now, let me make sure you understand that you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar because I'm certainly not. You don't have to be a Greek scholar because I'm certainly not. You can read that verse and understand at face value. It's it, pretty plain. But how much... Power, how much more powerful is it and richer is it when we realize that that deeper meaning, that his face are against those who do evil. So if, I, if his eyes are on me and his ears are open, then his face is where? On my face, toward me, in my direction. And that's not just a neat image that is a powerful spiritual truth for one of God's children. Uh, be gracious to me. He said, I entreat you, Lord, with all my heart. I am begging you. I am entreating you. I think of uh, Philippians 4, 6, before we go, go any further. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer, in supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. That idea of entreating your favor, that you talk to God, you ask God, you thank God, but you do it with a heart of supplication. Now, don't go out of here and don't misunderstand that I'm saying that uh, Hodgin said that you have to be on your knees. Or on, no, I didn't say that. But your heart better be. The word, the idea of supplication literally means, it literally, it has the idea of being a supplicant. You say, okay, what's that? Uh, if I am a supplicant, if I come into the court, into the, the, the uh, throne room of the king, I know I have no business there. Just like in Esther, had erased his scepter. I know that I have no business there, except he's allowed me to be there. And when I come before God with supplication, it literally has the idea of my face being against the ground because I am not worthy to look upward or ask unless He lets me. In other words, in, and okay, human beings, especially in this time, wait a minute, what do you mean? Now hold on. I'm an American. I'm not trying to be funny, but if we're not careful, we better be careful that we don't let that mentality cause us to have a rift with our God. Supplication means I understand who I am and I understand who God is and I want to be a part of that. I want Him to look at me. And when I request, I'm like the publican who said, I'm a sinner. Please be merciful to me. And I do, I, on the, I often say, you may hear me say in a prayer, we come to you on the bended knees of our heart, because that's where I'm trying to be. And that's where we have to try to be. But I entreat your favor, be gracious to me. 
I have got to move on to number three. But I want us to look at at least one more. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Now, we could easily drop down to verses 12 through 14, but before we do that, though, I want you to notice how obviously you'd say, well, duh, I know that. But let's not forget to hear it that way. Listen to how it reads. I hope you'll follow with me. Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, talking, that's Paul talking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn... Uh, the doctrine of our Savior. Now, I read all of that to get to verse 11 because verse 11 starts for the grace of God. Here's why you do what you do, verses 1 through 10. Here's why you teach these people to behave the way they behave and to, to, be who they, who, to be a child of God, whatever their position in life, because, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. We'll come back to that word zealous here in a little bit. But the idea of being anxious... Or being, excuse me, I went back to Philippians 4, 6, sorry. Gracious. Think about that for a minute. David said, be gracious to me according to your promise. What promise? Well, we already read it. The promise that we have that comes to that lively hope, that promise that we have through the resurrection of Christ, that promise of being God's child one day with an inheritance in heaven, that promise, uh, be gracious to me. Be gracious to me which we might read that as a, an English reading student who doesn't dig deeply into the Bible and think, oh, okay, be good to me. Give me what I want. Uh, be kind to me. You know, because I've I got lots of problems. Kinda, don't, don't get... But wait a minute. That's not what that passage says. Be gracious to me. Lord, allow me to become who you want me to be through your matchless grace. And if I read Titus 2, that means that I am going to renounce the things that are evil. And I'm going to work at allowing God to make me the person that I'm supposed to be. Now, that changes the way I see the Word of God. I entreat your favor. 
with all of my heart, Lord, shine your face on me and show me the things that I need to be shown. Number three. Okay. I think and I turn. Now, what does the word think mean? That's not a trick question. The word think. Meditate? Okay. Say that again. Ponder. Okay. Now, for those of you who are really young like me. Oh, I didn't mean that like it sounded. Uh, what does ponder mean? Because there's a word, I can promise you tomorrow if I walk into my 10th grade English classroom at Wheeler High School and I say, what does ponder mean? Not happening. You think about it. Well, what does that mean? You're kind of going around like me? No, you're not. You're not. What? You consider it. What are you considering about it? Everything you're saying is right, folks. It's very right, in fact. But when you consider something, what are you doing? Now, see, there we go. Now, no, you're right. We make the mental effort. We make the mental... It's kind of one of those things, well, I know what it means, but I can't explain it to you. Well, there's a lot of folks who don't know what it means. You make the mental effort of regarding or valuing or computing. In other words, you make the mental effort of saying, okay, if this and this and this goes together, then I get this. Or if I... Do people do that today like they used to? No. The first time I knew, and I promise I'm not trying to be insulting to anybody, but years ago I felt a little concerned. Brother Ken, I hope it's okay that I said Brother Ken because it's too late if it is. But I got a receipt back from... Uh, and I just glanced at it because I'm, I call myself economically frugal. My wife says I'm cheap. Uh, but I always look at the receipt and I thought, that, there's no way that says that. At the bottom it said, give this back to the customer. In other words, no longer did the people running the cash register have the ability to make change. Now it was pointed out, this is what you give them. I have actually witnessed individuals not able to actually count out exactly what was in the drawer to do that. Have you? Now if you're thinking, okay, well, what difference does that make? It may not make any difference today, but when those children have children, and that, it's going to matter. And you say, what are you fussing about? We have to be able to be cognitive, cognitively involved in the Word of God. And they say, oh, he just used a big word trying to impress. No. What I just said was, you and I have to have the ability to take a passage of Scripture and not only know what it means, but think about how it applies to me and what it's going to look like when I put it into place. And what's going, to, what's going to happen if I don't do it? When I think on my ways, when I ponder and I compute and I... 
when I do that, this is what I do. I turn. We have to be able to do this. I'm not making this up. I had a fellow I worked with years ago, this was before I started teaching, who bragged we had the same kind of vehicle. He said, I hadn't changed the oil in my car. I hadn't checked the oil in my car in a year. Two days later, his engine seized up. Well, I look, folks. There are some things that you simply have to work yourself through mentally that you have to think about. You have to be cognitive. In other words, well, this and this. That's what David said when I think about, when I put together an understanding of my ways, how I'm living. Now, by the way, how would I know if my uh, automobile was running low of oil or not? Oh, now, wait a minute. Don't depend on that little light. What if you... What, what? Now, what if you didn't have the light? How would you know? You have to check it. Now, <laughs> you have to... And I'm glad we've got the lights. And I know you're, you think, what in the world? Is he making a point? I promise I am. I know... In fact, I was just thinking about the, the truck I'm driving may stop tonight. I, I've had it, I drove it off the lot in January of 2006 uh, and had just a few miles on it. And so far, it's, but I know when it gets to a certain point, before it's time to change the oil at that 3,000 mile, it's going to be getting low because that's where it's at in its life. And I go out and I check it. There's a measure. And I know here and here and here. And you think, what's that got to do with my life? Think about that. You should know enough about your heart, enough about your soul, enough about your own perspective and your own behaviors to know when you're walking in the light and when you're getting awfully close to the shadows. And if you don't, the devil is just... Licking his lips, waiting on you to keep easing over closer. Folks, that's the truth. He said, when I ponder, when I think of my ways, I turn my feet. Now, that's just simply meaning I, t I turn. And you know who I think about? That word turn means uh, literally to turn about, to return, to turn oneself. You know what's interesting? To turn about, if I'm going the wrong way, then I know I need to turn around. I mean, that's kind of obvious. When are you going to turn around, by the way, when you're going the wrong way? Come on, that sounds like a trick question, but it's not. When are you going to stop and turn around when you know you're going the wrong way? Wouldn't it be silly not to? Now, have any of you ever gone to the mountains or to Knoxville on Interstate 40? I'm sure you have. And you know when you get to Nashville, it splits. Right? And when you're coming back, I'm actually coming back this way, it goes, it's split, right? When we get to Nashville. Well, this happened to me. I lived in Tennessee. This is a true story. You can't make this stuff up. And I'm on my way actually back to Maywood for a, a Friday night. Oh, did I say Nashville? I'm sorry. Chattanooga. No wonder y'all were looking at me funny. I meant Chattanooga where it split. Sorry. Thank you for clar clarifying that. Chattanooga. And I was, actually I was listening to something on my CD. It, was, it worked back then. I was listening to something on my CD, and I think I was talking to my dad 
on the phone. I was headed to, to Maywood for an overnight retreat in a, a, a staff meeting or a counselor or board meeting. So I'm driving along. This is really happening. And I look up, and you know those signs that say, those flashing electronic signs that say, buckle up because Mississippi cares or Tennessee cares? Well, I was riding along, and it said, buckle up, Georgia cares. And I thought, well, that's odd, you know. And, and then immediately I saw a sign that said, welcome to Dalton, Georgia. And I said, I got to go, okay. Uh, I said, no way. So I called my friend uh, Jeff at Maywood, and I said, Jeff, I'm going to be late because I'm in Dalton, Georgia. He said, how did you get in Dalton, Georgia? Uh, you don't want to know. I literally paid no attention and took the wrong split, and it all went all the way to Dalton, Georgia before I had any idea that I had to go all the way back to Chattanooga because uh, no way I could ever get across Georgia. So the point was, do you know when I turned around? The minute that I knew, oh, it's past 45 minutes because I had the wrong thing on. I didn't have a stopwatch. I, whoops. I kept wondering why the buzzer didn't go off. Sorry about that. Uh, but now you can see why I shouldn't navigate. I can't even run the stopwatch correctly. But when I realized I was going the wrong way, I turned around immediately because I was going the wrong way. And that's what that verse is. And Lord willing, I hope you'll read the rest of this section because in one more verse, what did that fellow do, the prodigal son in Luke 15? When did he go home? When he came to himself. And that's what that passage is all about. Thank you very much. If, uh, and I apologize, I, the teachers are probably saying bad things about me. If you need to partake of the Lord's Supper, or if you have a child in a class who are now wandering amok, uh, please go and retrieve them and, uh, in the little chapel. The Lord's Supper is prepared if you didn't have that opportunity. The rest of you, give them a moment. Okay, I guess that's everybody. Uh, thank you very much for your attention.